0: all right my friends this event is called after the fire and this is a conversation with marika a very special conversation about a very powerful topic there is a yiddish expression that goes like this the yiddish expression goes nachas vet reich that's the expression who knows yiddish raise of hand rosita i want to see your hand up good mom good all right. So, Mark, I can't tell if you're muting or unmuting or raising your hand with the Yiddish. But either way, it says, <laughs> which means after a fire, one becomes rich. And, you know, when this, when this uh, phrase was coined in the shtetl, I don't believe that they had um, insurance money. They had insurance in mind. I don't believe that it was an insurance... Um, uh you know conversation that's not what i believe it was it was the idea that after tragedy after pain after loss after trauma there is we believe we believe with every fiber of our being we believe that there is a silver lining there is a blessing there is there is a light at the end of every tunnel there is a silver lining to every cloud that's what we believe so if somebody, God forbid, was going through a challenging time, the refrain was, Nachasrefa v'ert reich, after a fire, one becomes rich. In other words, there's the opportunity to rebuild and to grow. Some fires are bigger than others, and some fires are more literal than others. Tonight, we're going to talk about a literal fire. Uh, a fire that took place in December of 1995. That quite literally changed the trajectory of a family. And uh, our, our guest speaker as well here tonight. Um, Marika's story is incredible. It's profound. The what she has taken away from this experience is profound and, and, and just mind, uh, just mind expanding and heart opening. Um, I heard I first encountered Marika's story on a podcast. I heard it not that long ago, and immediately, as soon as I heard it, as soon as I finished listening to it, I immediately reached out. And Marika, it was incredibly um, uh, gracious to spend some time with us here tonight to tell her story and to help inspire all of us. Um, we know PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, but there's another. There's another refrain in psychology, another acronym in psychology, which is PTG, which stands for post-traumatic growth. So there's, there are way, different ways in which we can respond to trauma. One is um, with the stress and the negativity, and the other one is a positivity. It's not either or, of course, it's not either or, but there is the ability to grow from the difficulty, from the, from the, the negative experience. And that is what we're gonna hear about tonight. Um, uh, Marika is joining us live tonight from Boston, taking time away from her very busy schedule to spend some time with us tonight. So without further ado, I'd like to, uh, warmly welcome Marika into our community round of applause. I know everyone's muted, but give me a virtual round of applause or a real round of applause and, uh, Marika, take it away. What we're going to do tonight is a bit of a conversation. So, um, if you will, I'd like to begin with uh, with a few questions and get the conversation started. So, Marika, first of all, welcome. Tell us a little bit about yourself and just some some basic information, uh, you know, about who you are and what you, what you do and 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 uh, give a little a little bit of context,
1: please. First of all, thank you so much for inviting me to speak and to share my story. Um, I'm really touched, honestly. I've never been to Atlanta, but I hear it's a pretty awesome. Thriving, growing Jewish community. So hopefully one day we'll meet in person. Um, be an honor. I'm fourth generation Bostonian, which is very rare. Just so you know, Boston's a very transient city. So if you're even second generation, it's a big deal. Grew up in Brookline, and I've been here my entire life, other than two years that I spent in Israel. Um, professionally, I'm a real estate agent, but I would say that I believe the work I really do is. Stuff in my community. So I'm very involved in growing the young adult Jewish community in Boston. Community means a lot to me. And I try and find ways to give back other than writing checks, which I can't do, but I can give my time, which I think is just as precious, if not more.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay. So if you will, please tell us about your family. Kind of take us, uh, give us a little bit about, about the background of your family and, of course, your grandfather, Aaron Feuerstein the mention of Malden Mills. Tell us a little bit about the history.
1: Absolutely. So my uh, family has been, on my dad's side, has been in the United States since the late 1800s. The first one to come here, we call him Henry I. So it's my great, great grandfather who came here in the late 1800s to New York City, not to Boston. And like many Jewish immigrants, he had a very big problem because he could not hold a job and it wasn't because he didn't work hard or because he wasn't capable but frankly because you had to work on Shabbos and that was just the way that it was you had Sundays off but not Saturdays and what my grandfather told me because I know all these stories through him was that all across New York there were signs if you don't show up on Saturday don't bother showing up on Monday So what a lot of the Jews would do was they would just take off for Shabbat and then they would have to look for a new job come Monday or they would just work on Shabbos, which unfortunately is what happened to most of the Orthodox Jews that came here. Now, this was pre-World War II um, and World War I, but it was just very, very difficult for observant Jews. And so he was at shul and was just, beyond miserable. I think he broke down in tears or just emotionally. And somebody at Schill told him, okay, you know, stop complaining, go get a push cart and start selling stuff. And he's like, but how? He goes, I don't have any money to do that. And they said, well, pick what you think you can sell and buy it on credit and just save your money and, you know, make sure you can sell. And that's what he did for five years. He worked nonstop, didn't work on Shabbos, saved as much money as he could. And he eventually accumulated $25,000, which was a fortune in that time. And then, of course, back in Shul, which was, you know, the hub of the community, a bunch of young guys were investing in real estate. I later found out through my friends who these families were. They're very prominent, wealthy New York Jewish families today. And they said, you know, with your 25000 you can invest with us. So they bought a few buildings within a year that 25,000 became 50,000 and then 100, then 150, 200, eventually $250,000. And my gran- my great-great-grandfather felt like he was on top of the world. And then there was a mini real estate recession and slowly that you know value just started decreasing. And when it got down to 50,000, he wanted to pull out and his partner said, you never take your money out of real estate, you wait for it to go up again, which as a real estate agent is actually very good advice. And he saw an ad in the paper that there was a knitting mill on sale in Malden, Massachusetts for $50,000. He insisted on taking his money out, and a few days later hopped on the bus, went came to Boston, Bought this mill for this knitting mill for 25000 Had no idea how to run a textile company or knitting or anything. Found the right people. And within uh, 10 years, he was a millionaire. And that's how my family's story began in Boston.
0: Wow, that's, uh, that's pretty incredible. And what year was this when he was uh, making uh, a few hundred thousand dollars? This was...
1: So the New York time frame was like 18... 1890s. He came to Boston early 1900s.
0: Wow. Imagine.
1: So it was, you know, that time that I don't know the exact dates, my, my second cousins do. But um, what's amazing about what they did was, of course, he never forgot how hard it was to find to ha- find a job where you didn't have to work on Shabbos. So of course, word spread very quickly. That there was a Jewish owned knitting company in Malden, Massachusetts, where every Jew has a job and doesn't have to work on Shabbos. They're just responsible to getting to work. And he employed many, many, many Jews. And that's really what started to build the observant community in Boston, because now there was a purpose for religious Jews to be there. So that was really the beginning of the Boston Jewish community.
0: That's amazing. That's amazing. And you mentioned to me when we spoke earlier that um, your family has a strong connection with the synagogue over there. Can you speak about Very that? Much so.
1: Yeah. yeah, so early on, of course, there was no Orthodox synagogue. So they started a synagogue. I think in the beginning, my great grandfather was out in Malden. Eventually, my great grandfather came to Brookline and started the Young Israel of Brookline. Um, they started that synagogue with Rob Soloveitchik, a couple other families. But they were really, um, I mean, what my family did in the beginning, I didn't even know these stories until last few years, but I mean, they just funded and supported everything. Um, also during the Holocaust, when they obviously started to hear what was happening in Europe, they gave work visas to anybody they could to get them out. So they saved a lot of Jews during the Holocaust. Um, every Jew had a job. I mean, that was kind of the thing, um, always. Every Jewish person had a job at Mulden Mills after During the Holocaust, they had jobs. After the Holocaust, I know he employed a lot of survivors.
0: That's incredible. And give us a sense of the scale of the mill and its heyday. How many people were employed in the mill?
1: So my great-great-grandfather had a knitting mill. And it was not huge at that time. It was was a successful business, but it wasn't the mega business it became. Um, My great-grandfather took it over and he struggled, I guess knitting wasn't such a, was starting to kind of get dated at the time. And then my grandfather started very early on working in the mill after he graduated from Yeshiva University. And he took a loan from my uh, paternal grandmother or from her family, I would say. I think he took a half a million dollar loan. No, was it half a million. It was a lot of money. It was a lot. It was somewhere around about $500,000 back then. And um, he, that's when it became Malden Mills. Moved it to Lawrence, Massachusetts Massachusetts from Malden. And uh, it became all textiles, upholstery, apparel. They were famous for faux furs. They did all the linings and car seats and vehicles and blankets. And that's when it exploded. And that's when it really became a real brand. Um, very successful. And then in the 70s, out came polar tech. And that's really what took it to the next level. They invented fleece. Um, they obviously was not just an unbelievable material, but it came from, you know, recycled plastic. So it was good for the environment to kind of, to produce this material. And I mean, the rest is history.
0: Amazing. So this, uh, so Malden Mills was the exclusive, uh, manufacturer of polar polar tech.
1: Yep. They invented fleece.
0: Wow. So all the winter gloves and the winter coats and all all of that stuff was all coming from Patagonia,
1: L.L. The- Bean, all the high-end apparel companies. If they sold fleece, it was Polar Tech. That was it's like saying Kleenex. You know, you know how it, it was just Polar Tech was the name for fleece. Polar fleece. I mean, it was all out of Malden Mills.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Tell us about the life, your life, the family life before the fire, before 1995, what was, what was life like for the time family?
1: Um, I would say it was very professional. We had a very professional relationship with my grandfather. Um, I didn't grow up knowing my grandfather. I always say, um, there, it was a tale of two Zadies, the grandfather I had before 1995 and the grandfather that I had later on after the fire, um, most grandparents would give anything to be close to their grandchildren. Um, sadly, my grandfather's first wife passed away young, so he remarried. And he was always in demand. He was running a major textile operation with 3,000 employees. He was a mega philanthropist. So I only saw my grandfather a few times a year. You know, Rosh Hashanah was, you know, maybe Rosh Hashanah and Pesach, but it was always at a hotel, very formal, very formal. I would never just go to his house. Like that wasn't a thing. And if I did, we'd stay upstairs. We would never go to, you know, where he slept or anything. It was always a professional relationship. He loved us, but he wasn't this like warm and fuzzy grandfather. And we, I grew up in Chicago for my first seven years of my life because we had a branch of Malden Mills there that my dad worked out of, but we moved to Boston to give you guys context of how my grandfather viewed us and how much he wanted us around. Uh, He didn't want us in Brookline where he lived because it was too close to him. He wanted some separation. So Newton, which was maybe like a 10, 15 minute drive seemed more suitable, have us be a part of a different Orthodox community, which again, like is unheard of for a grandparent, but he just was living a very different lifestyle. He was the CEO and his life was his employee's and what he was doing for them, and the role of running the company. And being a grandfather, I would say being a father, it wasn't up there on his list. He knew how to buy us gifts. He, of course, supported us. If we needed something, he would pay for it. But beyond that, there was no warmth.
0: Very interesting. And, and tell me about, you know, growing up, was the sense, that uh, with regards to the money in the family, the sense was that you know, we were a family that had money. Was it was it understood? Was it overt? Was it subvert? Like, what was the the relationship there?
1: I'll tell you a funny story. When we first moved to Boston, and I ended up at the Maimonides School, I was seven years old. I came a few months into first grade. My mom gets a call from my first grade teacher that she has to come quickly because I'm handing out $20, 15 $100 bills to all the kids. So I think I had this notion early on, you give money away. You know, it was kind of ingrained in me. And then that's what you do. So if that helps explain, I mean, there was never, I never heard the word no when it came to buying something, but we were definitely a family that didn't buy fancy cars. We didn't go on, we didn't join country clubs. We weren't these on these extravagant vacations. We gave so much charity. I mean, really it came down to just giving charity. That was the thing. And it was something that I just learned early on that, there were always people knocking on our door asking for donations. And that's really where the money went. We had nice things, but when I see, you know, other wealthy people today, I think it's more about the personal material versus giving to others. So that was definitely where I saw, I saw the point of, of wealth.
0: And it sounds like a a very um, important perspective to be ingrained at a young age. Um, Very it's a cute story about giving away to the, to the to the other classmates, giving away the money. But it's a but it's giving. It's not it's not showing off. It's it's give literally giving to others. Very interesting. Um, okay, so let's now let's move on to a conversation about about the fire itself. December eleventh, nineteen ninety five, was the night of the fire. What do you remember about that day? Tell us. Uh, bring us back to that to that time, please.
1: Absolutely. So I remember it very well. Ironically, um, it was the night of my grandfather's 70th birthday party, and he was not somebody who liked to celebrate birthdays. I actually have him recorded saying he doesn't believe in birthdays. He believes in achievements, but my step-grandmother insisted on throwing this party. 70, she felt was a milestone. So we rented out a restaurant in Boston, I remember everybody was there that was connected to him, our immediate family, cousins, everybody high up in the mill, people who he was close with in the community, photographers, musicians. I mean, it was an affair. And uh, ironically, it's the last time I, my immediate family had a family portrait. Um, and middle, I'd say midway through the birthday, people just started whispering constantly and People were slowly slipping away. And back then there were these things called phone booths that had pay phones. And there are a couple of them at the entrance of this restaurant. And I saw my aunt and some other people in these phone booths and everybody was frantic. And of course, word started to spread that the mill was on fire. So my dad, my uncle, my grandfather, the heads of the company all went to Lawrence, which is about a 45 minute drive from Boston going north. I remember going home with my mom and my three siblings and we turned on the news and every single news outlet was showing this company in flames, which if you've ever watched the 60 minutes, you could see it was a massive, massive fire. It was the biggest uh, fire that Massachusetts had seen in a decade. And it was devastating. And I remember it was very windy that night and very cold. So the firefighters had a very difficult time putting out that fire. Um, In the morning, really nothing was left. It was just, I mean, there were brick buildings, so the bricks were still there, but everything inside was just gone.
0: Yeah, I I remember reading, I've seen the 60 Minutes coverage, but also reading articles. about the about how devastating that fire was. What was the reaction in the family? I guess let's say not everyone has the same reaction. What was um, personally? What was your reaction? What was how, how, take me take us through that?
1: I didn't fully understand. Um, I I had never gone to the mill. I was too young, so I knew this is my grandfather's company and this is where my dad worked. But I didn't understand how insurance money worked. I didn't understand that these people had no jobs, it, you know, as a child, you don't really register. But when I went to, sh- to school that day, um, I remember the next day, I remember all my teachers were giving me hugs. Like everybody was just like shocked. And, you know, this was one year after the young Israel of Brookline had a fire, uh, which I remembered, uh, which was my, the show that my family started and my grandfather had given a lot of money to rebuild that synagogue the year before. So it was these back to back fires. That was very ironic. Furstein also means firestone, if anyone's curious or speaks German. So it was just very eerie. I realized early on it was a bad situation. And of course, everyone was stressed. I mean, uh, you know, it was right before Christmas. So I started to hear a lot of conversations between my dad and my mom about, you know, what was going to happen if we were going to rebuild or not rebuild. And just no one was getting paid. People just didn't have money. Now, the workers, of course, the high executive workers had high paychecks, but there's a lot of people who were making minimum wage. Um, and for them, this was really catastrophic. And if you've ever gone to a, a an area where there's like a, a business, like everyone works in that business, like, you know, like DuPont, you know, is like the business for that part of Delaware. And, you know, for Lawrence, it was Malden Mills. So all these people who lived in the Merrimack Valley, that's where they worked. So it was a whole town that was devastated. And then I would say the whole, a, a big chunk of the Jewish community was also devastated from this.
0: So what was, uh, we've, I'm sure we've all read the articles and seen the coverage on it, but from your perspective, what was your grandfather's reaction to the, to the fire? Just take us through that, please.
1: My grandfather, um, his life was that mill. His life was being CEO of Malden Mills. It's how he grew up. It was what he helped create and, and grow. That's where he spent all of his life. He was dedicated to that mill more than he was dedicated to his family. So for him, this was not just, okay, like this is my my, my business. It, it was his entire identity. And he felt a major responsibility to his workers, But I also think it was his own personal identity as well that was all tied into this. Um, I don't think he ever hesitated for a moment not to rebuild. Obviously, this was a time after NAFTA when everything was starting to go overseas to China. Uh, He also had a patent on fleece, but his his patent ran out. So China was starting to create fleece. So it could have been a great opportunity for him, if he was going to rebuild, to rebuild in China and to take advantage early on of manufacturing overseas, which he had not only access to, but he had like, he was front and center. He had, you know, front row tickets to what was about to explode. And that was something that he never, ever considered. I mean, I think he decided to rebuild very quickly. And then I think he had to decide where he was going to rebuild. And he wanted to rebuild back in Lawrence. But I think what blew everyone away, which of course is what he's famous for, is not just the rebuilding, but to pay the workers and to give them not only their full salary, but he gave them all Christmas bonuses. So it was just unheard of um, at that time. I mean, everyone referred to him as the Jew that saved Christmas that year. And, you know, the truth is he was always an incredible person and an incredible CEO, when he passed away, I started getting messages from all of his workers about the things that he did, you know, in the sixties and seventies and the eighties for them. So that's, I guess, what I learned after he had passed, that he was always this incredible giver in his company. So it made sense that this is what he would have done. But it really was his whole life. He was doing acts of chesed for his his workers. That was his thing. So I don't. it wasn't like all of a sudden he changed as an individual and all of a sudden became a giver. This was always who he was. He just now did it on a macro scale for the entire world to see and to make this amazing kedusha Hashem.
0: Thank you for sharing that. And I think that it's it's interesting what you said about his identity kind of being you know, tied into the mill. So not hesitating to rebuild it where it was, not to, not go a combination of identity and chesed philanthropy. It's kind of, you know, mixed mixed all together, which is human. That's very real, very authentic.
1: Absolutely. There was a dark side, I will say, um. You know, everybody who I'd spoken to said that there was working at the mill before 1995 and working at the mill post 1995, pre 1995, it was just a very, it wasn't just a happy environment. I just think it was kind of like more locally known and things just changed after the fire. It just, I think all the publicity, I think there were a lot of people in my grandfather's ears talking. I mean, He did this unbelievable thing where he paid his workers and spent $25 million on people's salaries. He was, he could have pocketed $300 million from the insurance company, but when he became famous, I think a lot of people just also kind of came in that weren't always there to begin with. And that's really when things started to shift. My dad was never home. So for me as a kid, I remember when they were doing the rebuilding I never saw my father. I mean, people were working at the mill night and day to kind of rush to get it running again and and figure things out. There was a lot of fighting at the mill. It was a different atmosphere post fire. Um, And definitely, you know, what we didn't, I didn't know at the time, but of course what unfolded for me personally was it was the beginning of not just the end of the mill, but like my parents had a major divorce and separation, you know, maybe six to seven months after the fire. So it was kind of like for me, those were that was the dark time in my life. It wasn't just it was like, yes, there was this unbelievable mitzvah that everyone was talking about. But behind closed doors, I was witnessing a lot of the things that meant a lot to me just go away very quickly.
0: Why do you think not necessarily about your parents, but why do you think that um, this incredible intense moment with the chesed with the and the publicity, why do you think that caused the, you know, some interior crumbling to happen? What's what's your take on that?
1: There was a lot of disagreement on how to rebuild. Uh, there was the apparel division, and there was the upholstery division, and there was uh, my grandfather. The, my grandfather loved both of those. There was a lot of pressure because Polar Tech was becoming so big to put more emphasis on apparel, apparel, and to get rid of the upholstery. So there was a lot of infighting there was a lot of people who knew that my grandfather was given a lot of money. So when he was rebuilding, certain people put him under a lot of pressure to spend a lot of money rebuilding, which was one of the reasons he lost the company. Um, He overspent, he didn't get the money all at once. So he had to take out a loan. He never thought that the mill wouldn't do as well as it did prior to 95. And he had, it did, he lost accounts that didn't wait for him to rebuild things started to go to China. He had more competition. So the mill still made money, but not enough to pay interest on, let's say a hundred million dollar loan. Uh, so there was a lot more pressure at stake. And I think that tensions were very, very high all of a sudden. And so even, you know, this was a family business. So there was my, my aunt, my uncle, my dad, my dad's cousins, uh, you know, second cousins and, People in the community. So everyone had says, everybody felt the pressure of what was going on. Everybody was affected, but these, it was very hit close to home. So if something didn't go right or someone's division got closed or more money was being allocated in a way that someone didn't agree with high, a lot of fighting, a lot of fighting.
0: sounds like a lot of cooks in the kitchen, as they say.
1: Way too many. Way too many.
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. What, what, just out of curiosity, what ended up um, just on a, on a pragmatic level, what ended up with the, um, with the rebuilding, the rebuilding took place in the same location. Was it moved to a different location?
1: Same location. What my grandfather should have done. And he admits this is he, you know, they were brick buildings, which meant that they were going to be, you know, retain the heat in the winter and be cool in the summer. And He built these state-of-the-art glass facilities and he just really made this over-the-top mill and it cost a lot to heat, a lot to cool. It was very expensive to build. So he just, he overspent. And so by the time the dedication rolled around, he had a beautiful company, Um, but that was really the beginning of the end. And shortly after was really when, they saw the numbers just weren't there. I remember we had a couple of warm winters in Boston. They lost accounts, and it was just year after year, it was just the interest on the loan until, of course, he had to file for Chapter 11. Uh, so for us, when, when he filed for Chapter 11, my parents were still in the middle of their divorce, but they're kind of coming to the end of their three year battle. And they had spent a fortune. On their divorce, and because my grandfather was in the news so much, not that my parents' divorce was anything special. I mean, it was it was very bad, but everything was in the paper. So for me, I remember as a child, my life was always very exposed. It was exposed with the fire. It was exposed at the divorce, and then it was exposed at the Chapter Eleven. So it always felt like what was going on at home was always in a headline, which is very hard as a kid to always see that. So I learned very young. Better to just expose your baggage yourself because then there's nothing to talk about. You know, it's not worth it to kind of keep it to yourself because everyone's going to figure it out anyways at some point.
0: Right. Better, better on your terms than on someone else's terms. Exactly. It makes a lot of sense. So timeline wise, what I picked up from, from the way you shared the story is that it took about from the, from 1995, December, 1995 until the mill was rebuilt. And then until, um, uh, chapter 11 was filed that's about three that took about three years or so four
1: years oh I the dedication of the mill was I believe but the beginning of 1997 like end of 1996 early 1997 about a year, uh,
0: a year a little bit over a year later
1: yeah and then the chapter 11 was around 2000 2001 was the beginning of it
0: got it Kind of, kind that was the of.
1: beginning. I don't know the exact dates. There were def- different waves of it. There were definitely a lot of years where there, we knew that they were, the mill was financially in trouble. Then there was the initial chapter 11. Then there were the, the years that they were, my, they couldn't, usually when you go into chapter 11, the first thing you do is you fire the CEO. But How do you fire Aaron Feuerstein? They couldn't. He was I mean, he was honored by Clinton. He was the mensch of Malden Mills. How, how dare they? I mean, he did something that was unthinkable in a positive way, but they went after everybody else. So everyone in my family slowly lost their jobs. Uh, the Jews in the company lost their jobs. They tried to go after my grandfather where it would hurt. So he remained in his position for a while and he remained on the board um, until he was he left the board because he wanted to raise money to buy the mill back. So he spent a year or two raising money, trying to regain control. And he raised a good amount of money. I think they wanted 80 million. I don't remember the exact figure, if it was 60 million or 55 million. He, he raised a lot of money but they didn't want him a CEO at the end. So they ended up choosing a different buyer who offered less, which is unfortunate. Had he gone the 80 million, I think they would have had to give it to him, but that was really when it was over. And I remember as a kid those years, because my parents divorced, my dad moved to Brookline. And so about one Shabbos a month or two Shabbos a month, we would have Shabbat Friday night dinner with my grandfather and my grandmother And I remember he needed a hip replacement and he pushed it off for a year and a half because he didn't want to take off time from this fight. He was dedicated to getting the mill back and he would often quote um, Eov, Job. And that was really the book that I think he identified the most with. Uh, For him, it was like Hashem was slowly taking everything away from him and he didn't want to complain. And I will say that he never, ever complained. Ever. Like I never heard him say like, how could Hashem take away my mill?" Or how could Hashem do this to me? Those that never, ever came out of his mouth. It was always, you know, you got to fight and no matter what, you know, Hashem tries to take away, you keep fighting and you don't give up hope. That was his big thing. Um, he was, he really lived by that. Um, and I spent a tremendous, I, that's when I started to really spend time with him. I remember him during those years of fighting, um, And then, of course, in my later years, I got much, much closer with him. But that was one of the most extraordinary attributes that he had. And I think today I I look around, people complain all the time. We look for we complain over nothing. Um, That was his superpower. His superpower was just never being upset with Hashem for anything ever.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Was was the family on board when he announced that he's going to pay everyone and open reopen the mill was everybody on board with that in the family or did that create some fracturing within the within the family
1: um everybody was on board with that i think the the fighting was over the rebuilding there was also money that was wasted they built a tower for i think 13 or 15 million dollars for the kids of lawrence so that they could look at look out and see all the textile companies which was a very nice thing to do but you know some of us felt there was a sentiment of well, if there is no mill, then what's the tower for? Like now you can look at all these these empty mills that used to be mills, but they're no longer there functioning anymore. So I think the issue is not what my grandfather did, it was what was wasted, you know?
0: Got it, yeah, yeah, yeah. What's interesting about the news cycle is, you know, we the news cycle, and it keeps on getting shorter and shorter, um, 1995, who can remember how long the news cycle was? But it didn't last that long even then. Today, I think it's a 24-hour, maybe even 12-hour news cycle. But then it might have been a few days or a week. You know, people hear about the fire. They hear about your grandfather, uh, and you hear about his menschiness, for lack of a better term, right? The mention of all the mills and Fursten. He's giving, he's paying. You know, month after month after month. I think he did three months uh, of of paychecks and and then bonuses. Um, But what happens? afterwards is uh not not necessarily in the news and i think that's really where um i was just you know just blown away when i when i heard you share the story and i would like you to share it for our community about what happened after the fire i know you started uh mentioning this but but tell us a little bit more about the behind the scenes and and the the fallout with the family and the what i would call i guess the trauma after the trauma
1: Absolutely. Um, well, one quick thing I'll say, and I, it's an interesting story, was that the church picked up on this. And just a side note that my grandfather, he was tall, skinny, red hair, blue eyes. Everybody here thought he was Irish, if they didn't know who he was. And he had been accosted by a priest early in his life um, that he wasn't supporting his community, the Catholics of, of the Merrimack Valley, of course. And he, every year, anonymously would go and give money to the soup kitchens from the Mer- Merrimack Valley all the way down to Cambridge. And when this news broke, they realized it was a Jewish guy who had been giving to all the soup kitchens. And the, Arch- the, the archdiocese that year gave him the biggest honor because that priest that was fighting with him ended up being cardinal law. And they couldn't believe it. And till, this, till today in the Vatican... Um, in one of the churches in Vatican City, I think it's the Mary Magdalene Church. i have not exactly sure. There is a wall that's dedicated to the judo christian relationships. And right there is my grandfather and polar Tech and what he did. So what's amazing was he was doing, again, a lot of chassid early on, but when the news broke about the fire people started to realize that he wasn't just giving to his community. It wasn't just his workers. He was giving on a large scale to a lot of people just anonymously in a very profound way. Um, So it's amazing. amazing. So uh, what happened to us was my parents divorced my mother. um, My mother, actually, she's amazing, but she's a convert. Not that that's a bad thing. It's, It's a huge honor, but when the fighting happened, it really affected her. So she moved away from the Jewish community and away from everything and was, you know, with my me and my siblings. And the Jewish life that we had was be at my grandfather's house on Friday night or at my dad's house on Friday night. But there's start that was when the separation started. And I think at that point, my grandfather started to realize that he needed to kind of step it up as a grandfather, because if he wanted to have practicing Jewish grandchildren, he needed to be more present. So that's when the Shabbat dinner started. Um, And we saw him once or twice a month, usually once a month. And then unfortunately, there was just so much fighting that went on in my household. Each of my siblings had a breakdown one after the other around ages 13 or 14. And they ended up going to upstate New York to my mother's family, where they felt much more comfortable because that was the family that was warmth. I told you my my Jewish side was very cold growing up. We didn't they didn't hug us and kiss us. and sadly, my Christian family was much more loving in that way, and that's where they felt comfortable. So my brother both my brothers ended up there. and then it was just my sister and I. I went off to study in Israel. Um, and my sister, well, actually, I went off to study in Israel. Most people pray if you go to the Kotel for 40 days for a Shidduch, that's like the main thing you pray for, or to have children. But when I did my 40 days to the Kotel on my own, I prayed for my family to come back together again. That was my plea. I just saw this family that that I grew up with just completely broken. And at the end of my 40 days to the Kotel, I realized that if there is a Judaism, there's this partnership between us and God, and I can pray all I want to to the to the wall, to Hashem. But if I didn't go back to Boston, it wasn't going to mean anything. And that I had a hand to play in this. So I changed my plans at 20 years old and came back to Boston. And that's really when my relationship started with my grandfather. My sister at the time was having her breakdown. She eventually went up to upstate New York as well. And then my mother followed they actually lost their house in the subprime mortgage crisis. They were complete. They were completely broke. My grandfather couldn't help them, um, and my mom was living at her mother's house. And everybody was there except for me and my father from our immediate family. And so I stuck around in Boston and thought, you know what? Somehow I'm going to get this family back. Here back to Boston. Like that, that was my goal. I didn't really care about my career. I didn't care about getting married. It was, I want to fix this fractured family. The time I was waitressing and my grandfather, I think didn't even care that I was a waitress. He just want, he was just happy. I was still around. And we used to have these dates once a week at the cafe I worked at, and they were centered around me and him growing a relationship. We talk about Shakespeare or poetry or current events, but it always ended with, All right, what's going to happen with this family? And so one day I said to him, you know, if you want to see my siblings again, and you want to have this relationship, you got to help my mom. If we can get my mom back to Boston, then we're going to get my brothers and my sister and everything will follow. And just so you know, there was my parents didn't talk. There was not good relationships between my mother and my dad's side of the family. So that was a big ask for me. And he agreed. He said, "Okay, we'll figure this out. So what I started doing was I rented a house that had an empty bedroom, a guest room. And for the hagim like uh, Purim or Pesach, I would throw parties and I would try and get at least my mom to come or my mom and my sister to come. And of course, coincidentally, I'd invite my grandfather and my step-grandmother and my dad and his girlfriend and just put the whole mishpacha in the same room. And they started slowly talking and I kind of started to break the ice. But my grandfather was very nice to my mother and long in the short, um, slowly, slowly, everybody started to move back. So as they did, somebody took a different family member. in. so my dad took my brother in and my, uh, my dad's girlfriend took my sister in, I took my mother in. We all kind of housed somebody. And at the time, my dad's girlfriend sadly was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. My step-grandmother was diagnosed with uh, stage four ovarian cancer. So there was a lot of trauma happening, but we all started to kind of work as a team to be there for each other. And when they all passed away, my, especially when my step-grandmother passed away, my grandfather couldn't really be alone. Like he was very independent, but it just wasn't good for him to be by himself. So my brother moved in and then eventually my mother and my sister, and they all became like his roommates and his caretakers. And I would say those were the golden years where every Shabbos I was in charge of our social calendar, I'd always have guests. So either my clients from work or it was friends of mine from the community, I started to really get involved in doing Jewish events and, and meeting people. And we just always had people over. And it was a real second chance of not only me and my siblings and my parents having a family, but I would say it was the first time that my, my grandfather got a second chance at being a father and being a grandfather. And it was unbelievable. And at the time, you know, none of my siblings had their GEDs, but they all eventually got their GEDs and spent time learning with him. And they all went back to school and went to college and just a side note with my sister. uh, She's incredible. She would sit and learn Shakespeare with him. And he said, you know, you're really smart. I think you should, you know, really push hard in school. you, You have a future. Long in the short, my sister ended up being a Jack Kent cook, uh, community college recipient, which is given to less than 20 kids a year. And it gets you a full ride to any university. So she ends up being a full ride to Columbia. But this was really through my grandfather sitting and spending time with her and just learning. So I mean, it was like, I, you know, people would come to our table and see my parents together. Because then at that point, my parents were friends, my grandfather insisted my mother be at the table. And they just kept saying, I've never seen divorced parents like this. Like you're just so blessed. And they just didn't know how much work went into this, like what things were like and what they became. So that was when my grandfather became CEO of our family. And you know, I took a trip with him to Malden Mills a few years ago. We were up in the Merrimack Valley for a funeral and we drove around. I'd never seen the mill. And it was beyond anything I could imagine. I mean, I'm in real estate and I just saw building after building after building, and they were all part of what was Malden Mills. And I remember he said to me, you know, it should have killed me to lose that mill. And it didn't. And it, I I thought about that a lot. And, And after he passed away, I realized why it didn't kill him because his identity Changed. If he would have said, "My identity is being a philanthropist, and my identity is Maldon Mills, and my identity is is being this CEO that everybody looks up to and everybody admires," he he would have lived a very short life. He would have been miserable, complained. But I think he saw that there was an opening to be to reinvent himself and to say, "I'm going to be Zadie. I'm not going to be Aaron Feuerstein. I'm going to be the Zadie of this family," which is what everybody called him. And I'm going to make it my business to see that my grandchildren make it in this world and that my son and my daughter-in-law and, and, you know, that they they're happy and that they have a second chance. And, you know, my grandfather supported my mother. She was his number one aide, especially in his last few years. She did everything. I mean, it's his his daughter, his ex-daughter-in-law. It's unbelievable. And that was because of his way of reinventing who he was. And it was one of the most inspiring things that I've ever seen in my entire life, honest to God. And, you know, he lived, he moved in with me the last two years before I, before COVID It was supposed to be temporary. Then he decided he never wanted to leave my apartment. So we became roommates. And that's when I really got to spend tremendous amounts of time with him. And my friends really fell in love with him, but He was just the most extraordinary human to be around because even in retirement, he treated every day like he was still a CEO up the same time. And this is like a 94 year old, 95 year old up the same time every day, always in a three piece suit, always sitting, always learning, dedicated his life to learning Torah, reading the news, uh, memorizing Shakespeare and all the great poets and all the sonnets and completely obsessed and devoted to being the head of our family. And that was everything. Shabbat was everything and family was everything. And you saw that for him, he had this peace around him that even though he wasn't in the most luxurious property anymore and he didn't have all this money, he was the wealthiest individual I knew. And it just, it flowed out of him. And it was, to me, you, you never give up. You know, that's why I said it at his funeral is that most people, when they lose everything, they give up. They say, okay, what am I now? And they just become depressed. A lot of people here commit suicide and, you know, the papers won't say it, but they lose their fortunes and they just end their life. They can't live without money. And he found another way to give that didn't revolve around writing a check. And I just think that most people don't realize that your life you, you give it your all until your last breath. You just don't stop fighting for it. And he was just an extraordinary individual. And for me and my family, I mean, I I've never seen a family come back together again. I've never seen a, a broken family just be a, a stronger unit. And even since he's passed, we've been even stronger. We've really worked as a team on a lot of fronts. And my parents are just so devoted to making sure that this family sticks together and, it's something that is out of a movie.
0: Um I'm I'm blown away and I just have so many things that I want to reflect on. But what comes to mind is the movie The Parent Trap, which you know is <laughs> remember that. It's been a while. It's been a while. So the, the plot line is not fresh, but I know it was about one kind of
1: Lindsay probably- Lohan's greats. No,
0: but I think there was an original. I think there was an original. Oh, yeah, there was.
1: Yeah, there was. There was from, the, I think, the 60s or 70s. Yeah,
0: I remember.
2: Haley
1: Mills. Yes, yes. The blonde, the blonde short hair.
0: Yeah. But anyway, that but I, to me, what you said about your grandfather reinventing himself and becoming the CEO of the family. And and I know you said this before, like a tale of Tuesdays, where before 1995, you know, very kind of. Um, formal a lot of formality and you would only see him once in a while and you know maybe hang out together at Pesach or you know whatever holidays (coughs) contrast that with full engagement with the family Shabbos dinners you know bring back to bring the family together I mean that type of shift that type of 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 growth after the trauma I mean it's 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 unbelievable as you said after trauma it's very, it, it it's almost expected on some level that a person might reasonably just shut down and here not only not a shutdown and it wasn't one effort it was multiple efforts to try to kind of you know um, resuscitate or or you know resuscitate the mill it didn't work and you would think after setback after setback but to reinvent himself just unbelievable as a as a as a as a head of the family as the patriarch of the family with with love and warmth is just It's just an inspiration. And I think that, uh, you know, to me, the lesson is sometimes we become so enamored with our definitions of self and and who we are and what we are and what we mean to ourselves and to the world to change. That is, is the most frightening thing in the world because without that identity, who are we? And here he just reinvented himself. That's amazing.
1: He, you know, he had so many health issues. Um, he had leukemia. He had a leaky valve. First of all, he had a ne- aortic dissection at 76. He fall and broke his, his leg in his eighties. He had a leaking mitral valve. They told him when he was 88, he had like two years to live. I mean, no one could explain how he ate ice cream twice a day. That was his favorite food. Me and him used to fight all the time. Cause he didn't like vegetables. He didn't like water and he loved ice cream. And he always would, you know, I would say to him, I don't know how you're alive. Like, how do you eat this stuff? You know, um, Hashem was keeping him alive. Hashem kept him alive for this. And I always said that Hashem maybe took away his money, but he gave him time and it was so much more precious. And I know he walked into Shemayam, the wealthiest man. I mean, he walked in Shemayim proud because of what happened. Not because of the, yes, he did the mitzvah with the mill, but it not like he could take the material with him. What do we take with us? We don't take any of that. We take the relationships and the bonding moments, you know, um, that's what we take with us. I mean, the, the amount of times I, I don't go a day without speaking about him ever so, constantly. I mean, he's constantly being mentioned. It's like, he's still here. You know, every summer we would go here, the ninth symphony at Tanglewood. That was his favorite. And he loved Beethoven but the ninth was like number one for him and specifically the fourth movement. And if anyone's familiar with it, you know, it's Ode to Joy. It's, it, it's unbelievable. But the last few seconds, it's just like, boom, 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 boom. It just doesn't stop. And he used to always say, that's what it's like when you enter heaven. And when he passed, it hit me. Cause he was obsessed with the ninth. And I think it's because to him, your life isn't the first movement, even though it, you know, which is like your, your childhood. It's not the second movement or the th- third movement, What really classifies your life is the fourth movement. You don't stop until the end. A lot of people just slow down and say, okay, I've, I've done enough for him at the end of his life. It was like fireworks going off. It was like, he just gave it his all and you don't stop until you have to stop. And that was his life. And I think that was the lesson is that you keep going and you never give up hope and you never stop and ask why you don't, you don't question, you just say, okay, how can I learn from this? And what can I do? And how do I keep going? How do I keep believing? How do I keep giving? That was him. And it's like most people can't have that mindset you know I mean even the night that was when Beethoven was completely deaf when he composed it and they had to turn him around for him to see that the crowd was going wild I mean again Beethoven's end of his life when he was deaf he composed his greatest piece but it was it's the, the idea that you just I think it's Jonathan Sachs that has had this amazing line um you don't know, you know, you, do, you don't know when you're in the middle of your story or the end of your story. Like you don't, you know, you could be right in the middle. Don't question your life in the middle. Keep going till the end. And even Judaism, that's just the idea. And I think a lot of us lose sight of it and we get caught up in the present and that's what destroys us. And that's what causes a lot of, of unfortunately anxiety and depression and sadness. And I'm not saying that you can always fight it, but this is one of the ways to get through it. You know,
0: that's, that's very powerful. That's very powerful. And it's, it just brings to mind that, you know, you could read the obituaries and, you know, which, which I did when, when your grandfather passed away, the yard site was, I think, Chavtas, what was it? 29th of. uh It, it, Hesh-
1: was, Rosh,
0: it was Rosh Chodesh Kislev. A month of light, a month the Kislev is of course, Hanukkah, a month of light, but you can read, you can read all the, the obituaries, you read the New York times and. And they're not gonna mention the family, right? They'll mention the big, the big what, what we would otherwise consider the big moments, the mill and the philanthropy and the, the communal efforts. But I think what you're highlighting is what, where his greatness and not to limit it, because there were many elements of greatness about his life and his legacy. But what stands out, at least for me, is, is the stuff that will never make the news. The stuff that would never make the papers. The well, what w- what it means to be a mensch, a, not just a mensch of Malden Mills, but a mensch, a mensch of the family. If, if we
1: mensch. if we never lost the money, I can tell you right now, we'd be miserable. I'm not saying it's easy not having the money, but it doesn't. i we are my family would be miserable. I'm convinced. I think he, my grandfather would have died a long time ago. I don't think anybody would be happy. I think there would have been a fight over who would take over the mill, who would be the next generation. I think a lot of times people in family businesses join the family business because they feel like if they don't, and they don't make it financially, that they would be considered a failure. So they go into an industry that they don't necessarily love just because they, the path was already put in front of them. And it can be a beautiful thing and it can be a, terrible thing, depending on how you use it and and, and what the family dynamics are. In our case, by the time it hit my dad's generation, it just started to go really downhill. And then I just can't even imagine how miserable we'd be. Mm
2: -hmm. You can always
1: make more money. You can't get that time back. You can't get those moments back. You can't get those relationships back. That's priceless. And of course, according to Judaism, we're here because of family. We exist because we continue to can exist and, and to create legacy. That's everything. How many Jews lost everything in the Holocaust and they got the money back. They reinvented themselves. I mean, you can always find another outlet, but relationships, that's another thing. You know, it's, I'll tell you a funny story. When I was waitressing, um, I had this customer who I loved. He was an architect and there was a big development going on right where the restaurant was. And so the whole Architectural team would always come and older guy, just very funny and nice. And so he'd always sit in my section. And one day um, it was Purim. And I said, I'm fasting. I've got to leave early. Someone else is going to take over. And he said, Can you tell me about this Jewish holiday very quickly? And I said, Sure. I said, We had this amazing queen who was Persian and nobody knew she was Jewish. And of course, there was somebody who wanted to kill us and destroy all the Jews and thank God we have this hidden queen and her name was Esther. And she ended up throwing parties, saved all the Jewish people and united them. And uh, we continued. I said, but the real message behind this holiday is that even though God's not mentioned, everything happens for a reason and there's no coincidences in this world. And that's what we celebrate. Everything is, is, is from God. And he was like shocked. He's like, do you really believe that? You know, do you believe that everything happens for a reason? And I was like, of course, this is my favorite holiday. And he said, okay, well, do you think there's a reason that I ends up coming to this restaurant? And I said, in your section and that, you know, we became friends. Um, and I said, absolutely. If you give me five minutes, we'll figure it out. Well, it took 30 seconds because, you know, my name is Marika. So I, I never need a last name because Marika stands out so much. And I usually try not to use my last name because I don't want people to kind of identify me with this family, but so not in a bad way, but I want to create my own identity. When he heard Marika Feuerstein, he said, my great grandfather and my father worked for Malden Mills. We we're from the North shore. And I was the first one in my family to get a degree, go to college. And I became this architect. And of course, here I am third generation. I'm his waitress. And we had the best laugh imaginable, but, um, you know, it just, it shed light on, on the power of, of things, you know, and even just for a second, kind of where I came from and how much my family gave to him. But, you know, wherever you are in life, there's a purpose, there's a reason, and you have to smile and you have to laugh. So what better time to tell the story than Adar, you know?
0: Right, right, right. Tell, tell us about your uh, TikTok account, Life with Zadie. Oh my
1: God, it's the best. It's, it's the best. I, if you guys don't have a TikTok account, I promise, get one. China's not going to spy on you. If they do, <laughs> it's worth it. Um, to me, he was Zadie. To my friends, he was Zadie. When he died, everybody lost his Zadie. I don't know how else to tell you that he touched so many people. I don't miss the mention of Malden Mills. I don't miss the CEO of Malden Mills. I don't miss Aaron Feuerstein. I miss my unapologetic, hilarious, sassy, unfiltered Zadie who made everyone laugh. And I secretly recorded him for a very long time during my non-shomer Shabbos years. I would record him on Shabbos, which I'm very thankful for that I have that footage. And then, of course, at the end, when I lived with him, I got to get him every day. But I started posting these videos a few weeks ago on TikTok to showcase who he was, who he really was, what the papers won't show. And he went completely viral um, one video has 1.2 million views. One has 700,000. The least amount of views, I think is 25,000. No, 24. He's got 26 and a half, 27,000 followers in the past week and a half, two weeks. It's unbelievable, but it, it, it's amazing to see because what I'm trying to show is he was this like personality and very funny and just next level character. But this same guy, you know, gave away all his money and supported people and did the biggest act of kindness, that actions speak louder than words. So you can laugh at him and think, oh, my God, this guy, you know, is a character. But don't judge a book by its cover because this guy did the most amazing thing. And also somebody who did this amazing act of kindness can also have a sense of humor. I feel like today people are so afraid to speak their minds. Everyone's so afraid to be themselves. He was always himself. And that was one of his best traits. He was a real, unique individual. And I think that every person in this earth needs to figure out what am, what's my purpose? Who am I? What's my personality? What do I bring to my community? What do I bring to my family? What impact can I have on society? And that's important to, to own who you are. And to always, of course, if you're lucky enough to have the Torah to follow, you have a real blueprint of how to act in this world and how to get through life but don't lose your personality in it. Don't lose your essence. And and that really was what made him so magical. That He was able to really balance both worlds really beautifully.
0: Amazing. So if somebody were to ask you, so what is the legacy of Aaron Feirstein? What would you say? What's the legacy?
1: I think the world's always gonna remember him. Well, that's not true. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I don't think we really remember these, situa- These um, unless you really are like a George Washington or an Abraham Lincoln or a JFK, you really are on a massive leadership level. The world doesn't really remember you after one, two, three generations. I really hope that my grandfather has a legacy that's going to be his, you know, great grandchildren and great, 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 grandchildren and great, 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 great grandchildren. Because I think at the end of his life, I think he realized that's what really matters. I hope that's what his legacy becomes. And that that lives on because that's really the most important thing. The world will forget. The world always forgets. But I think what ends up being the most important thing and the secret to Jewish identity is the family. And it starts in the home. That's why every house is a Beit HaMikdash. And I think he learned that.
0: Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. I, I, uh, I'm extremely touched. And I can just looking around, I got the Brady Bunch uh, set up on my screen here. Looking around, I could see that everyone here is very touched. Um, I guess one more question that I have, a personal question. Uh, do you know Mesh?
1: Do I know Mesh? He's my homeboy. <laughs> no,
0: I figured you said perm party. I'm like, Mesh, got, it's got to be Mesh. <laughs> um,
1: so I met Mesh when I was 22 years old. I was, bar- I, okay, this is the funny story. I told you. Oh, wait, I, it hold right. up.
0: Before, before you go, let me explain who Mesh is. Mesh Schwartz is a rabbi in Brookline. He's also, because uh, Rabbi Schusterman, who's from our Chabad house as well, Rabbi Schusterman's cousin. So there's some, some connection,
1: Schwartzy's Schwartzy's son,
0: Schwartzy's son, right? Some of you may be familiar with the book. We actually gave out the book on Schwartzy. I knew Schwartzy. You knew Schwartzy?
1: Yes. So the story is when I, this is why you never judge a a job, right? When I was waitressing, thank God, it was the best job I ever had. I was also a bartender at this restaurant, bartender, waitress, and somebody in the community heard, and they were having um, a birthday party for their 50th and said, can you come and can you bartend? And I said, of course, 22 years old. So I went to bartend at this event. The Schwartz's had just come to Boston the year before. I didn't know who they were. Um, I was in Israel at the time. And they had asked Schwartzy's, Schwartzy's, Schwartzy's wife, Olivia, to come in to speak. And so at the event, I was making this apple cider martini that I learned from the restaurant. And Shifra, Ramesha's wife, came up to me and said, you know, we're doing a Simplest Tour event in a few weeks. Can you be our bartender? So I said, sure. So that's how I officially met Masha and Shifra at 22. I was their bartender for, I still am. I think this will be my 14th year this year doing it. I'm losing track of, of the years, but.
0: The grateful you
1: Yes. And Schwartzy and Olivia would come every Simcha's Torah. That was their yearly trip to Boston. That's how I got to meet them and become friends with them. Wow. But I would say about, I, I was always tried to help out with the high center, which is where Mesh, uh, where Mesh runs. But I definitely three years ago, three, four years ago, really stepped up my game. And so, okay, I'm going to, Chabad took me to Russia and Mesh, you know, chose me as one of the people to go to Russia and to, um, work on community and like what you can do if you give back. So one of the ways I decided to give back was to take Purim to the next level. So I told Mesh, let's do a Purim party. Let's not just have it be Chabad. Let's get 15 young adult organizations involved like FIDF and the IAC and our Federation and the list goes on. And let's throw a $30,000 event in Boston and get everybody to come out. We've got one shot, one night, reform conservative orthodox, let's get everyone. And it was a Wednesday and we got over 500 people and we like broke all the records. And then we did it the second year, which was the last event that happened in Boston because it was March 9th. And the next day the world shut down, but we still sold 400 tickets and got 300 people. And it's the last event everybody remembers. And this year we're bringing it back bigger than ever. I've, I'm raising a lot of money for this. I Meish mean, is my number one partner. He's my uh, sponsoring 501c3. And we're going to make history once again and reopen Boston for our community. So it's not only do I know Mesh, I consider Mesh family, a very good friend. Uh, he's my partner in this community. Yeah, Very, very special person, him and his wife and their whole family.
0: They're all awesome. Yeah. Schwartzie was a legend as well. Wow.
1: Also sense of humor, character, individual. You know, again, these people who you look back, who makes the impact? The ones who are themselves, you know, we're supposed to be like Hashem, but that's unique. That doesn't mean just oneness. So you got to be who you are and you can still do a lot. Yeah.
0: Never let go of the personality. Amazing. Marika, thank you so much. Um, we do any questions that are coming up. I mean, I, I don't, I didn't see anything in the chat. Um, uh, some comments, thanking you and, and expressing how, how touched people are. Um, <laughs> Marika, do you have a minute if, if, if a few people yeah, have questions? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay.
2: Rabbi, for, yes. I want to thank you so much for sharing your story. And, and I hope that you share it with a lot of young people because it's an important story. Obviously, your grandfather was at tzaddik; You did not fall far from his tree. I think you are amazing how you ha- had a goal of bringing your family Back together. I mean, just incredible. God bless you and keep you well and help you in all that you're doing. It's just beautiful. And I'm very, you don't need me to be impressed. And that's coming from a
3: (laughs) SAPTA. And a
1: grand SAPTA.
2: Yes. So I'm so grateful that you had that.
1: Thank you. That means a lot. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Somebody's asking how to find my grandfather on TikTok. It's at Life with Zadie.
0: How do you spell Zadie? Z A I D Y. Z A I D Y?
1: Z A D Y.
0: Oh, Z A D Y. Life with Zadie, Z A D Y. Okay. Uh,
1: Somebody asked if I'm going to write this story down. You know, um, the guy who did the podcast started following the TikTok because he saw it on my Instagram. So he asked if I would, if he could make a documentary between the podcast, the 16 minutes and the TikTok to show the story. And I said, no problem, go for it. You know um, I will say this, my grandfather um, loved his workers. Like that was the one thing I think that hurt him in the end, I will say wasn't losing the company. He really loved his workers. They were family to him. And I got to talk to a lot of them after he passed away and a lot of people really truly like sent me these stories of, of things he did for them. I mean, this wasn't Malden Mills was a family. And I really realized that he went from having that family to our family because that was, it, it wasn't a, a regular company. I, I think after 95 it changed, but prior to 95, it was just this warm family and he knew everybody and everyone's names. So that's something that's very special that you don't see today. I think, especially with people working remotely, you know, I mean, it was a very special environment.
3: Amazing. Can I tell you one little story about your grandfather?
1: Of course.
3: I'm Lenny Samet. I'm in, and I was originally in high point and I live in Greensboro and I worked for him for 24 years in the sales in this area. Um, and when he would come to furniture market, we would always have him at our house for dinner because we were a kosher home. And I, it was amazing how he would insist on uh, when my daughters were having their bat mitzvah for them reading portions. And he would he would know it by heart. I, I mean, I know, you know, he knew that, but it was amazing how uh, he would know their entire portions by heart. Um, and I also know that he studied Torah one morning and Shakespeare the other morning, every other morning. But- uh, So
1: it means so much to me that you're on this call. Just so you know, I hope I hope I uh, you felt that what I said verified, you know, the facts were right. And, you know, I know I know he loved the upholstery division. I know it was very special to him and he did have the most amazing memory. I mean, he always said he didn't want to lose his memory. So he was constantly memorizing. But even in the hospital, you know, he 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 felt very suddenly and went very quickly. And it was still was a shock to all of us that he passed away because he didn't have an injury from the fall. He just very quickly started aspirating. And it was just, we still don't understand what happened, but it was his time. But in the hospital, they kept looking at him like this old guy, like, Oh, you know, he's the oldest one in the hospital, just make him comfortable. And he hated getting that he would, you know, say to the nurses, do you know who Emma Lazarus is? And he would start Quoting, you know, what's on the Statue of Liberty, and he would start quoting Shakespeare. And, you know, he never lost his memory. He went to sleep one night in the hospital and just didn't wake up. I mean, he had it till the end. And he, until the end, knew the entire five books of Moses by heart. He knew a ton of Shakespeare (laughs) by heart. And there was a film crew from Lakewood, New Jersey, that just by sheer chance filmed him the week before he fell they want to make a little documentary on him to to show yeshiva students and they were impressed with his memory and how good he was at the torah but then he said you know tell me do you do you guys study shakespeare and when they said no he's like you know shakespeare was one step below prophecy you really should get get learning on that you know and he started quoting i mean that was him
3: I remember him any you you point to anything in the filmish he knew he could recite it he He didn't need it
1: you know he spoke at Shakespeare's 400th birthday party and they he he said the most brilliant thing he compared and contrasted Kohelas and the last soliloquy of Macbeth that both talk about life is futile and empty and uh, the difference is that in Judaism you know you've got it, you know, Kuhalus, uh, King Shlomo brings it back to God. You have to fear God, but that God runs the world. And for Shakespeare, it's kind of like there's this emptiness, like there's hubris and, and life is terrible and everyone kills each other and it's over. But, you know, he was brilliant at bringing those two worlds together. That was one of the things that he enjoyed most was, was looking at the differences and the similarities between the great works of Shakespeare and, and the Western works and also the Torah.
3: I'm very impressed that you have learned so much from him.
1: He was my best friend.
0: <laughs> wow!
1: So, Marika, I'd, I'd like to say something.
2: First of all, I heard you at the funeral, and I was blown away. Thank you. And I'm hearing you now, and I'm doubly blown away. So, I'm a Marnis graduate. I graduated. The only year you can turn upside down will say the same number, and you can figure that out. <laughs> I do. <laughs> okay. But also, I know your grandfather in a very special way, because I think he, your mother learned with somebody before she
1: converted, right? The the Bussner Rebbe. And that was me. Wow. Cindy, right? Is your mother? Of course. And she always says that those were her best, her favorite years, by the way. I found so- her conversion journal recently. I would love to stay in touch with her. So maybe I can, you know, connect with you afterwards. Rabbi that. Rabbi
2: Ari. But here's a funny story about your mother. You can remind her of it. So I learned with her maybe, I don't know, half a year. And she was afraid to, to go to Davening because she didn't know what to do. So I said, okay, I'll go with you. I'll sit in the back and I'll let you, you know, hang out with everybody else and, and see how you do. And She did. I was watching her the whole time. And afterward, I went over to her and I said, so how was it for you? Were you comfortable? Were you able to to understand everything? And she said, only one thing. I was wondering at what point you turn around and say, so how's your Uncle Harry? She saw somebody who turned around in shul, and she thought that was part of the services. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm always telling people that story about what what's what's important and what's you know incidental. So oh, that's uh, so funny. I, I'm, I'm so happy to meet you, and please please give her my love and. and, and really- I,
1: I will, and she's she's a real today I mean, for her to take care of my grandfather after her divorce and her la- and his last <sighs> years, it just shows you how much of a special neshama she has. She is the best human.
2: And by the way, the theme song for Maimonides in those days was the fourth, uh, um, uh, uh, what was it, Beethoven's Ninth and the fourth part of that. So.
1: Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So nice to meet you. I'm, I can't wait to connect you to my mother. Thank you so much. Great. Right. Right. I'm,
0: I'm, if I can help anyway make the connection. Yeah, okay. The, all right. I got all the you give me her email. Great. I'm just going to say that just as a as a witness to some of the magic that's happening here tonight, I am just astounded and blown away and just extremely inspired um amazing thank you marika thank you very much for being here with us thank you all for sharing and lenny and you this with the personal remarks as well incredible absolutely incredible uh, marika may may hashem bless you with all of your heart's desires may you continue to share the legacy and the love of your grandfather May his neshama continue to have an aliyah. And please, God, very soon, come back down and join us with Mashiach, and uh, and the big reunion, the big reunion.
1: Amen. Yeah. Amen. Happy Purim to everybody.
0: Thank, Thank you. you. you Hatzlacha Rabbah with the good luck with the with the party. Thank you. Austin is back. Very exciting. Austin is back.
1: <laughs> Thank <laughs> you care. very much.
0: Have a good night, Lila Tov.
1: Thank you, Lila Tov. Thank you.